I'm Mike Kozer. Welcome to the Lost Ballparks Podcast. Join us now for another Brooklyn ball game here at Ebbets Field, Brooklyn, USA. Greetings, baseball fans. This is Mel Allen greeting you from Yankee Stadium in New York City. Hello, everyone, with Bob Prince and Nellie King. This is Gene Osbert speaking to you from Forbes Field in Pittsburgh. Well, friends, here we are back at the Polo Grounds in New York City. We're underway in the first of a twilight doubleheader at Tiger Stadium. And it's baseball here at Crosley Field. Just the start of things. So pull up a comfortable chair. If you want to take your shoes off, go ahead. Wiggle your toes, and we hope you'll have a cold shave for it. A couple of months ago, I got an email from longtime Lost Ballparks follower John McBride. John told me about his friend, David Kessler, who was the bat boy for the Philadelphia Phillies from 1966 to 1973. David's father was Teddy Ace Kessler, who worked for the Phillies going all the way back to the 20s and 30s and their time at the Baker Bowl. And I just knew that as a bat boy, David had to have seen everything in the clubhouse. And I knew that he would have some great stories to share with us on the podcast. And so, Welcome to Season 2, Episode 3 of the Lost Ballparks Podcast, David Kessler. Hello, Mike. How are you, David? I'm uh, looking forward to this. You have a remarkable family history. Your dad, Ted Ace Kessler, was in charge of the visiting team's clubhouse all the way back to the Baker Bowl, which was Philadelphia's ballpark before Shad Park, Connie Mack Stadium. We're talking the days of Babe Ruth. Yeah, you know, I, I often said my father, who started around, uh, I guess at 1920, he was just a kid, and he would encounter players who maybe were near the end of their careers. So that means they started around the turn of the century. And when he finished up, he well, he died in 1982, he encountered players who presumably were, uh, you know, rookies, and they their career went into the 90s. That meant his knowledge and his span of baseball went probably the most most of the 20th century. Incredible. And you think about all the players that he came in contact with who would have come into the visiting team clubhouse at Philadelphia's Baker Bowl, right? Yeah, that was raised in 1938. Which brings us to the ballpark that the Phillies moved to after they left the Baker Bowl, Scheib Park, later named Connie Mack Stadium. Connie Mack Stadium, named for a man whose name will never be forgotten. So when did you begin working at Connie Mack Stadium? Well, I became uh, the Bat Boy in 1966, but I started down there oh, maybe when I was about 12 in 1962. I used to shine shoes and, and sweep floors, and the players really took a liking to me. That's when I uh, really became, uh, I, got, I got the nickname Deuce from the Los Angeles Dodgers, uh, Stan Williams, who, who just passed away. Uh, this past year, he was a reliever. He started calling me Deuce because my father was ace. And uh, even to this day, my friends will call me Deuce. And since I was the youngest Kessler, there were no trays. <laughs> so I can imagine as a 12-year-old, all you know, your friends have these other jobs, right? Maybe they're working at the local grocery store or uh, delivering papers. You are working at Connie Mack Stadium. How many of your friends were like, hey, do you need some extra help today? I heard <laughs> I heard this team's yeah. in town, and I heard the Giants are in town, and I, uh, I'd i love to, to come help you out. Yeah, see, the, the even though the job wasn't very glamorous, all I did was, you know, shine shoes and, and sweep floors, you know, because baseball was such an important part of everybody's life then. You know, not so much now, I think because there's so many other things competing for baseball's attention. But then, oh boy, I was a big time superstar. 
let's start with this. You arrive at the ballpark on any given day at Connie Mack Stadium. Where do you park? How do you get to the visiting team's clubhouse? What's the route look like? Well, we always had uh, special parking because we were the first to arrive. People, you know, they would often think, oh, man, you get there an hour before the game. No, that's not how it was. You got there eight, nine, ten hours before the game because there was always a lot of prep work. You know, you had to prepare for, you know, the players' uh, equipment and their uniforms and and washing and drying and all that stuff. So uh, we were there a long time. Okay, so how would you get to the clubhouse, the visiting team's clubhouse? What, what, would you go in through the main gate? No, no, we had a special entrance okay. you know, for employees, yeah. What part of the, what side of the ballpark was that on? Well, the ballpark was located at Lehigh, and that was where the, uh, the special entrance was. That's where when the uh, players' team bus would arrive, that's where they would drop off the players, and they would come in through there. Did it ever occur to you, as you were preparing the equipment for that day for the visiting team, that you were handling some of the most prized possessions of guys like Hank Aaron and Willie Mays? I mean, we're talking all-time greats, and you are transporting their bats to where they want them and getting them ready for the game. (laughs) Yeah, but you know, uh, because it was uh, such a part of the job, you kind of got blasé about it. You said, ah, it's, it's just equipment, and you know, you're ready to do the job. Okay, but looking back. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was special. I uh, I remember going to the Hall of Fame with a couple friends. I was there a couple times. But the first time I went, I uh, was kind of cynical about it. And I said, ah, what do I want to see? And then I saw how special the place was. And, it, and I realized in retrospect what it was that I had done, you know, when I was a kid. What you had come in contact with. So around 1960, 1961, your father, Ted, nicknamed Ace, was working in the visiting team clubhouse at Connie Mack Stadium. And he prevented something tragic happening to Hank Aaron that may have actually prevented Hank Aaron from breaking Babe Ruth's record. Walk me through what happened. You know, we've all seen altercations between players, whether it was on the sidelines or on the court, and it was common. Well, there was an altercation in the clubhouse between uh, Henry Aaron and another player, and uh, it got pretty heated, and my father kind of walked over just to make sure it didn't become physical. And sure enough, uh, as Henry thought he had said everything that he needed to say, and he turned to walk away, and the other player, he had a Coke bottle in his hand. He was going to crash it on top of Henry Aaron's head. And my father stepped in and grabbed his arm to make sure it didn't happen. The ironic thing was, Henry Aaron always had an intense interest in Babe Ruth. And he would often ask my father about, you know, stories about him. Uh, My father did know the Babe. And, you know, on occasion, he would even be drinking beer with him. So he would be able to relate to Henry a lot of the, the stories about Babe Ruth. Wow. And again, to think had your dad not stepped in, who knows what happens to to Hammer and Hank, you know? <laughs> you got it. You got it. Yeah. Okay. And you were actually Hank Aaron's bat boy for some of his biggest home runs. Yes. friend of mine, he always scours the internet and looks for things. Hank Aaron only hit one inside the park home run in his entire career. And it happened in Connie Mack Stadium. And Connie Mack Stadium was great for that because it had such a huge outfield. And it had a, a large scoreboard in right center. So you hit, you know, the ball certain places and it'd be rattling around. And you saw a lot of uh, triples and inside the park home runs. 
I forget the date. I think it was 1969 when Henry Aaron did it. But uh, yeah, an inside the park home run. I remember that the, the important thing that I remember about it was I had to get to the plate to grab the bat to get it out of the way in case there was a play at home plate. While we're talking about it, you mentioned the scoreboard. We might as well just take this opportunity to dispel the myth that the scoreboard at Connie Mack Stadium came from uh, Yankee Stadium. There were similarities, but there are a lot of people who believe that it did. And we'll just say right off the bat here that it did not. So, <laughs> Yes, that was just baseball folklore. In 1964, Sandy Koufax is in town pitching at Connie Mack Stadium. The F&M Schaefer Brewing Company of Brooklyn, delighted to be sending it to you. Hope things are going just right for you, wherever you may be. And pitches one of his famous no-hitters. You kind of had a hand in it. <laughs> yeah. I wasn't yet bad boy. I was only working in the clubhouse. And one of my jobs was to supply all the sports magazines for the players to read. I used to have subscriptions to Baseball Digest and Sport Magazine and uh, the Sporting News. And the players would have an opportunity to read it. Sandy was looking at an issue of an old sport magazine, and he had been struggling in a couple of his previous appearances. And he looked at a photograph of himself delivering a pitch, and he realized that, oh, I have to make an adjustment. So sure enough, he went out that night and pitched no-hitter against the Phillies. And the anecdote uh, made the newspapers. And I remember the ace uh, teasing me the next day. He said, hey, uh, general manager John Quinn and Philly manager Gene Mock aren't too happy with you today. They were your employers. And here you yeah. are providing the fuel and maybe the knowledge for Sandy Koufax to go out and pitch that no-hitter against your team. Yeah. Again, when I was at the Hall of Fame, I was kind of cynical and blasé about it. And, and I'm walking through the Hall of Fame, and a, a friend of mine loves to recount uh, when I saw an exhibit of all the final pitches thrown in no-hitters. And all of a sudden, I shouted out, hey, I handled that baseball. And it was the final pitch in Sandy's 64 no-hitter. When things like that would happen, big moments, whether it was a player's first hit or a, uh, a landmark home run or a no-hitter, would you be in charge of, of taking the ball or the bat or whatever they wanted to keep from that? Yeah, they had no authenticators in those days. It was kind of an informal process. But I do remember uh, handling that ball because uh, it was such an important thing. Players would get to the ballpark early, and occasionally there would be a rain delay or two uh, to pass the time. We know ballplayers do all kinds of crazy things. But sometimes at Connie Mack Stadium, a game of wiffle ball would break out. Is that true? <laughs> yeah. After we finished our work, we had downtime. So to amuse ourselves, we, you know, we would play cards or uh, just read. And we also would play wiffle ball. We had a, a, a clubhouse that was quite small. And it was in configured kind of strangely, but we would figure out our own little set of ground rules. You know, the trainer's room upstairs was a home run. And if you hit it to the right of this one steam pipe, that was a double. So we had a lot of fun doing that. I remember one time uh, we were playing and usually uh, the ball players would, uh, they would come around two, two and a half hours before the, the game started you know, on the team bus. But occasionally players would wander in much earlier than that, maybe to just to get treatments or something. 
Well, the San Francisco Giants had a, a left-hander by the name of Billy O'Dell. Pretty good pitcher. And he came in, and that was our cue to shut down the game. Well, he said, no, no, keep playing. Not only that, he wanted to join in. He was like a, a toddler. He, he pitched about three or four innings, and finally somebody said to him, uh, hey, uh, say, Billy, aren't you uh, pitching tonight? He goes, all right. So he started pitching to us with his right hand. He was a left-hander. And I don't think it bothered him a bit because I think that night he, he shut out the Phillies. Unbelievable. What a great story, man. Speaking of the clubhouse, broadcaster and former Cardinals catcher, the great Tim McCarver, uh, when his club would come to town, he actually appointed you, and make sure I have this quote right, guardian of the radio. Why is that? <laughs> yeah, well, we both had the same taste in music. And there was Top 40 Radio, where you could hear the Beatles and the Stones and Motown and the Beach Boys. And that's what he wanted to listen to, and that's what I liked. And then if the Cardinals were in on a on a weekend, you'd have uh, a Sinatra station on one of the FM uh, Philadelphia stations. You'd hear uh, Friday with Frank and Sunday with Sinatra. Well, the problem was he, he might appoint me guardian of the radio, but... <laughs> Guys would wander in, and uh, they would want to change the channel. Ray Washburn would like to hear country music, and Orlando Cepeda would go over and put on some Spanish-language uh, programming, and somebody else would want uh, rhythm and blues or jazz. Yeah, because you got to remember, so, there's, there's, there's one radio in the clubhouse. It's not like today where yeah, everybody's got their own it, phones and listening on you know whatever device they have. Exactly. See, technology takes care of that problem now. Everybody has a laptop and a cell phone and headphones, and they can listen to whatever they want. Uh, but then there were no uh, flat screen TVs or, or anything like that. So there was just this one rickety old radio. Yeah. And you trying to tell Orlando Cepeda, hey, no, don't change the channel. I mean, and he's how much bigger than you? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I would say to Tim. I said, Tim, I can't stop them. They're much bigger than I am. I want to talk about uh, Chicago Cubs great Ron Santo. And I want to personally thank you guys because you have completed my life as far as I'm concerned. Tell me the story about how he bailed you out one night at Connie Mack Stadium. What happened? The Cubs were beating the Phillies, oh, 10 or 12 runs, and I think it was the ninth inning. So naturally, the uh, Phillies just ran out of players, and they, they put in Cookie Rojas, to catch. He was their emergency catcher. Well, even though he was a very, very good player, but he, he was primarily uh, a middle infielder. So sure enough, he's catching and ball four gets by him. Don Kessinger was the hitter. Don is entitled to first base because of the base on balls, but he can also go for second because it's a passed ball. Well, I know that rule, but as the ball is going towards me, I'm saying to myself, don't touch the ball. Don't touch the ball. Don't touch the ball. Well, of course, I, I touched the ball and handed it to Cookie. The uh, Cubs players, naturally, they all got on me. They're screaming from the dugout, Hey, Deuce, you, 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 you just cost us the game. We're going to lose the game because of that. <laughs> and home plate umpire Al Barlick, he came over to me and he said, Son, don't ever do that again. I'll have to eject you from the game. But Ron Sano said to me, hey, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. So he hit one into the upper deck. There's a long drive left field. Back and that is long gone. 
And that was the end of that. And then you were able to return the favor the next year, right? Yeah. He was a diabetic, but and he had been diagnosed at age 18, but no one knew about it. But, you know, sadly, it took him from us. He died in, in 2010. So we had this twinight doubleheader. In those days, you didn't have day-night doubleheaders. You, you played two games in the afternoon or two games at night. And invariably, they were tough. Uh, this one twinighter we played, both games went extra innings. Both games were held up by rain. So it was a long, long night. Ron was looking particularly tired and pale. And it was because his blood sugar was skewed. So he said, go into the clubhouse and, and get me a candy bar. So I got him one, and uh, it you know, seemingly perked him up, and he got the game-winning hit. And even though I was a rabid Phillies fan at the time, uh, I always felt good when I could help a player do his job. At one point, you're playing catch at Connie Mack Stadium, presumably in the outfield or on the sidelines, with the great Phil Necro. What was it like trying to catch that guy's knuckleball? Yeah, um, I was uh, shagging flies, and I casually mentioned to him, I said, you know, I I once caught uh, your mentor, Hoyt Wilhelm. And he said, yeah, how'd you do? And he says, don't worry, I'll I'll take, I won't give you my good one, because they were both, you know, great knuckleballers. So uh, I didn't get any gear, but sure enough, Hoyt threw one of his good ones, and he got me right in the shin, because it was very difficult to catch. So Phil said, uh, well, why don't you catch me? And uh, then you can say that you caught the two best knuckleballers in the world. <laughs> and it, it's filthy. It was filthy, right? Like it's dancing all over the place. Yeah, yeah. I, I wasn't the greatest uh, ball player in the world, but I used to like to go out there and, you know, shag flies. I remember one time I was uh, shagging flies in, in Connie Mack Stadium, and I was in dead left. And there was a long, high fly ball to right center. And I said, I'm going to get it. So I took off, and out of the corner of my eye, I could see Don Sutton of the Dodgers uh, standing there with his arms folded, intently watching me. (laughs) I did everything right. I got to the ball, and guess what? It hit my glove and popped out. Don said, damn, Deuce, you make that play, we're going to put you in the lineup tonight. (laughs) And uh, he said, you look just like a little kid who dropped his ice cream cone. It was your one shot, your one opportunity. Yeah, and uh, play catch with Mays and play pepper with Willie Davis. To be able to have those experiences and those memories of playing ball, being on the same field as some of baseball's all-time greats, it's incredible. And speaking of all-time greats, we recently mourned the passing of the great Dick Allen. Allen connects solidly. This way, way back. A 400-footer that sails into the bleachers in deep right center. And you spent many days with him at Connie Mack Stadium. What was he like? Yeah, he was a great guy. Um, he was very misunderstood. He was the kind of guy that used to like to hang out with the uh, grounds crew and the clubhouse guys and the ticket takers. And he knew those people by name, right? Yes. He would never fail to make a fuss over me whenever I happened to walk into the Phillies clubhouse. That was the kind of guy he was. There were a lot of disappointed people in Philadelphia when he was not inducted into the Hall of Fame. I don't understand it. He deserves to be in the Hall of Fame, and I don't know how you can look at his numbers, look at his career, and not put him in the Hall. The bats that he used, were they really 40, was it 42 ounces? Yeah. I didn't do very well in physics in in high school, but one of the, the reasons I think he would hit the ball so hard 
and so far was because of the size bat that he used. See, he was only 5'11", 187. Now, that's certainly not a small man, but it's small compared to a lot of the guys today. Dick was so strong, I, I think he hit the ball as hard and as far as some of these guys who were much bigger than him. And for those who don't remember Connie Mack Stadium, you look out into left field. On top of the left field stands were some advertisements. One of the most famous was the Coke sign. And so one time, this was maybe four or five years ago, I asked Dick Allen on Twitter, what did he remember the most about Connie Mack Stadium? And he just said two words, Coke sign. And it's because on at least more than one occasion, he hit a home run that actually went over the Coke sign on the roof and out of the stadium. And and at nighttime, it was kind of majestic. You'd see this tiny white ball disappearing into the black sky. The ballpark at 20th and Lehigh was known as Scheib Park from 1909 to 1953, and then Connie Mack Stadium from 1953 to 1976. The exterior of the ballpark was inspired by the French Renaissance. So if you Google Scheib Park, particularly the early years, I think you'll find that a more beautiful ballpark, at least from the outside, did not exist. However, one element that detracted from its beauty, at least on the inside, was the so-called spite wall that was erected in 1935 by the Philadelphia A's, who were at the time the sole tenant of the ballpark. The spite wall was a 34-foot corrugated metal slab that was placed on top of the existing right field wall. The team did this to prevent the homes along North 20th Street. They were row houses on the other side of the right field wall. They did it to prevent them from selling rooftop tickets, much like they did at Wrigley for many years. So prior to 1935, these homeowners, these entrepreneurs, would stand by the ticket booth and vocally advertise cheaper tickets to come watch the games on their roof. Regardless, it was a an ugly feature. But if you ever happen to be in the area, those homes along 20th Street, those row houses, they're, they're still there. Yeah, yeah. My godparents, uh, they were named uh, Charlie and Mary Quinn. They were immigrants from Ireland, and they operated a, a tavern at 20th and Lehigh, right there where you're talking about. And the legend has it that because the Phillies' bullpen was in deep right field, Pitchers would sneak out and go over to Quinn's Tavern and grab some beers and sandwiches and take back into the bullpen. <laughs> That's so great. Well, listen, on October 1st, 1970, it all came to an end for Connie Mack Stadium. It was the final game. Connie Mack Stadium opened its doors for the last time with the Phillies entertaining the Montreal Expo. And how old are you at that point? In 1970, I was 20. Were you worried about what was happening during the game? For those who don't remember, can you kind of just retell the story? Well, the last years of Connie Mack Stadium, it was a tired ballpark. It was 60 years old. The Phillies weren't a very good team, and uh, people didn't want to uh, take public transportation to the games. They'd rather drive their automobile, and there wasn't much parking. So the Phillies decided to retire the place and, you know, build the veteran stadium. So uh, what happened was the last game of the season, they decided to have uh, a big celebration. So even though they were only drawing six, seven hundred thousand people a year, you know, those last few years, this time it was a packed house. And as you entered, they would issue uh, these wooden slats, you know, the kind that would be on the backs of the seats. And they would put a commemorative sticker on there saying... Something about being at the last game, yeah. Thursday, October 1st, 1970. Well, it was a good premise, but it didn't really work out because 
those things really became kind of dangerous. They started to dismantle the park. I remember looking into the stands uh, around the fifth inning, and I saw a guy walking through the stands with a urinal that he had somehow managed to unbolt from, you know, men's bathroom. Of all the things to take, like not a seat, a, a urinal. And, and it was kind of scary, especially since there was so much alcohol involved. So I remember very late in the game, a uh, crew chief approached the uh, our dugout, and we were playing at the Expos, and Gene Mock was managing the Expos, and he had his whole umpiring crew with him, and he finally said, uh, Gene, listen, I- I'm-, I'm tempted to, uh, you know, to forfeit this game you know, to the Phillies because I think it's getting out of hand. People were running on the field, and uh, it was just, you know, kind of dangerous. And I was standing there just kind of listening. <laughs> and inexplicably, they all looked at me for some reason. And I said, uh, well, uh, yeah, they'll riot. And so we played the game. And it meant, did mean something because the winner of the game would escape last place. So the Phillies won the game and they finished in fifth place in the division and the Expos finished in sixth. I remember someone telling me, too, recently that they were at that game and on the way out, someone had unbolted a series of three of the of the wooden stadium seats. And I don't know if it was a cop or a security guard or someone saw them and they dropped it in the middle of the street. The security guard kept going and the, the kid <laughs> picked up the three put him in the back of his car and left. When uh, the game was over, the place looked uh, devastated. Fortunately, there were no postseason games they had to play because they wouldn't have been able to. Man, incredible. Okay, so one final story I I would love for you to share is that uh, by early 70s, you're now at Veteran Stadium and Hall of Famer, the late Joe Morgan, came to town with the Cincinnati Reds. Again, this is like early 70s, I would imagine, and the ball club now at Veteran Stadium. And he asked you to do a favor for him. What was that favor? <laughs> yeah, he, uh, again, I, I always tried to help the ballplayers. Well, he needed to break in a new pair of spikes. And he was only, you know, I don't know, size six or seven. And I was a size eight. So I wore them for a couple of days. And I, I really had, it was very painful. And the other thing I was amazed about was how did a guy five foot seven hit so many home runs? in size six shoes. Yeah, incredible that he was able to do that. Just picturing you walking around with these shoes that you can barely fit into, probably getting horrible blisters, but hey, taking one for the, not the not the team, but taking one for the other team. Yep, you got it. Hey, well, David Kessler, I really appreciate this trip down memory lane. I could sit and talk and hear your stories all afternoon. It's just, it's been a real pleasure to revisit some of the the history at Connie Mack Stadium, previously known as Shy Park, and then, of course, talk about your dad at at the Baker Bowl, going all the way back to the times of Babe Ruth. Uh, What a great privilege to talk to you today. I really appreciate the time. Mike, it was my pleasure, and I do appreciate you uh, inviting me. Thank you so much for listening to the Lost Ball Parks podcast. Special thanks to our producers, Mike Dunn, Matty Zavlakis, Xavier Guerra, and Michael Orman. A quick reminder, our Lost Ball Parks patrons have access to every single episode a week early. They also receive premium video clips from our interviews, behind-the-scenes details and footage, limited-edition merchandise, and a whole lot more. So look, if you've been enjoying the podcast, love baseball history, can't get enough of it, and would like to elevate your experience, visit patreon.com slash lostballparks. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash lostballparks and sign up. Thanks again for listening, and thank you for supporting the Lost Ballparks podcast.